I wanted to be an actor, my mother was horrified. It's definitely advice I'm personally going to hold on to. That would be just the most unappealing thing <laughs> to have to do. Love it. Your experience at your firm is your responsibility. Today on File Notes, we're joined by Anna Ryan. We speak about how she started the competition law practice at Lane Neve and what it's like being a partner at the firm you started as a graduate at. Anna is a subject matter expert, holding a master's degree in competition and consumer protection law and chairing the advisory board of the Competition Law and Policy Institute of New Zealand. And recently, Anna's been named on the list of elite women in law for 2023. Let's get into the episode. So, Thank you so much for joining us, Anna. We're really thrilled to have you on this episode of File Notes. So you graduated from the University of Canterbury with a degree in Law and Arts, and you started as a graduate at Lane Neve. You're still there 16 years later. Did you ever imagine that you would stay at the same firm for such a long time? (laughs) Yes, I know. I'm a Lane Neve treasure, can't I? (laughs) No, to be perfectly honest... I thought I would probably be at Lane Neve for two years. Uh, When I graduated, it was quite common for grads to do a couple of years in New Zealand and then you'd head off on your OE, probably end up working in London. And so that's how I always imagined my career would start. Um, And as it turned out, literally almost to the month when the two years came up for expiry, Um, the global financial crisis hit. (laughs) And so I had some friends who were at other law firms and they had also planned to go off to the UK and they decided that they would go anyway. And I watched with interest to see how that would work out. And what happened was that they really struggled to get work and a lot of them ended up actually coming back to New Zealand after a few months, having exhausted all of their resources. And then These were really brilliant students, some of them, and they actually really struggled to get jobs back in New Zealand as well because the the legal market was just sort of frozen up for a period of time. So I decided that I would stay at Lane Neve. I really enjoyed my job, so I was really lucky. It wasn't, I didn't have any, you know, desperate desire to to head it off other than wanting to see the world. And... um, by the time the job market started to free up overseas, I think things had sort of changed for me and um, it wasn't so attractive wanting to go anymore. Yeah, I feel like it's uh, similar to the times at the moment. I hear of so many lawyers who have done their three years in New Zealand and they've gone over to London hoping to find a job in law and they've applied for so many jobs and are such great lawyers, but they're really struggling and a lot of them are having to go into roles that they would have done when they were at high school. Oh, wow. I I hadn't appreciated that, to be perfectly honest. We had, post-COVID, been preparing ourselves for um, an exodus of our wonderful authors heading off overseas. But, um, yeah, it's interesting. I think it comes down to individual priorities, doesn't it? And so uh, you might end up going overseas and not working in the job that you imagined, but you get really interesting exposure to all sorts of different areas of law. Um, but equally, for some people, a real focus is wanting to get established here in New Zealand, trying to buy a house, have a family, those sorts of things. So, yeah, it's different for everybody. Exactly. 
And do you think by staying at Leigh for such a long period of time, you've had any particular challenges or opportunities stemming from that? Yeah, both, I think. Definitely opportunities and challenges. Um, I know for some people they have a concern that if they stay in the same law firm for um, an extended period of time from a grad, it can be difficult to feel as if your more senior colleagues recognise you as a as a peer that you know that you might always be seen as a junior and making that transition is challenging for some people. I personally I didn't experience that. I think one of the advantages of working in the same place is that you build um, really long term relationships with your colleagues and so you're operating in a really high trust environment. You earn that trust and it comes back to you in lots of different ways. So um, there's, there's been so many advantages to having worked in the same firm consistently, um, but having the support of your colleagues and that network around you, and particularly in corporate law, the long-term client relationships that you develop over many, many years, very high trust relationships. Um, yeah, I would say that that's a huge advantage of, of working in the same workplace. So, hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting how you said about uh, if you sat at the same place, people worry that you'd always be seen as a junior to your peers. I never really thought about it like that, but I guess if you enter as a clerk, it could end up quite like that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But I mean, everybody's getting older all the time, right? So eventually those grads are the partners in the firm and the people who are the partners are um, hopefully sort of looking to the next stage of their lives. So you do want good continuity and handover too. So there are some advantages. That must be quite a cool experience seeing junior lawyers for the lawyers that have been there for a long time, seeing them come up through the ranks and eventually make partner. Yeah, well, Lane, um, we have a lot of partners who started as grads. I should have actually checked to see how many there were, but there's a number of us is quite a cohort. And um, we do really invest a lot in trying to grow our homegrown talent. And we're always very happy for people when they decide that they're going to head off overseas and explore the world, or um, there's an opportunity that comes their way that they decide to grab with both hands. But we're, we're more thrilled when we're able to bring people through up the ranks. And um, it just, I think that's one of the things about that makes Lane a really special place to work is that it, it really helps to build a wonderful culture in the firm when people have been there for a really long time and we all know each other really well. What kind of things would you be looking for in someone to give them those opportunities? Like someone who's um, really hoping to be kind of raised up by the firm and to grow into more senior positions? It's a really good question. So when we have lawyers start at the firm, say somebody starts as a graduate, initially there'll be a lot of focus on the doing of law. So clients will come to us with questions, legal questions, and um, our authors will be focused on doing legal research, helping to draft legal opinions, preparing contracts, all of the um, learning all those technical skills that will make them really proficient. But there does come a point in a lawyer's career, particularly when you're in private practice, where um, excellence in terms of legal skills is, is really a given. That's just a minimum prerequisite to practicing. 
Um, and the longer that you're operating in a law firm environment, the more senior you become, um, the more you need to be looking at developing those other skills that feed into helping to run a successful law firm. So those are skills like mentoring junior lawyers, um, helping to manage client relationships, um, learning how to bring work into the firm. And so here we invest um, a lot in our authors, helping them to learn those skills because it's really unfair and impossible really to say to somebody who's 10 years PQE, oh, by the way, you suddenly just need to know how to do this now. So we just try and do a little bit every year and you build up expertise in those areas as well so that um, by the time you're at senior associate or special counsel level, um, you're really um, able to offer, I suppose, the whole package that's needed. And so whilst you've been at Lane Neve, you were able to start your own practice area. The things you've been saying of what you needed to know how to do, did you have the support to do that then or did you kind of learn as you went for that? I think I could see what it took to run a practice area at Lane Neve. We work, all of our solicitors work very closely with the partners and because it's a full service firm, you can you can see how different practice areas operate and how the partners who head those teams, how they generate their business, how they've built their expertise, how they've structured their teams, all of those things. So there's an opportunity to observe. Um, and there are a number of teams at Lane Neve that have grown up in the time that I have been at the firm. So I watched, for example, um, Mark Williams uh, found and grow our immigration practice into a national leading immigration team. Um, there's a number of practice areas like that. And so I had a bit of a blueprint for what was required. But what I would say is that every type of law has its own uh, peculiarities. And so you need to build your practice around the type of work you're going to do and the kinds of clients you're going to service. And also you need to build your practice around the kind of person that you are because um, lawyers operate in all sorts of different ways and there's no one right way to found and run a practice. So you need to play to your own strengths. So working out what those strengths are and then investing in those um, you are going to really struggle if you are endlessly trying to, for example, win work by engaging a behaviour that pushes you outside of your comfort zone in a really uncomfortable and unpleasant way. But if you find what you like and you just do more of that, then that's, I think, a much easier road. And do you have any particular strategies that have been really key in your ability to network with clients and get more work through that process that junior lawyers could perhaps embody and use themselves? Yeah, so again, every lawyer is different in the way that they go about doing this. So one of my fellow partners who started at Lane Neve as a grad, I would say, um, she uh, appears on the news a lot. She's got um, a really great media style. She's really confident and that's 
something that she enjoys doing. Um, for other partners, that would be just the most unappealing thing <laughs> to have to do, and they would probably avoid it like the plague. So um, one, one thing I think that everyone can do, which is a good thing to practice, is just working on those one-to-one -one client relationships and trying to build up a really high degree of trust and confidence. And that sounds simple, but it's actually quite, it, there is a real skill involved because every person, every client is different. And so learning how to work with different personalities and adjust your style to best suit the person that you're helping um, that's a skill that will get you very, very far in law because ultimately you're a trusted service provider. So if you need to be able to win the trust of people and um, and be able to provide the support that they require. So um, I just always try and be available for my clients. I know how frustrating it is when people try and get hold of you on the phone and you can't get through to somebody. So I keep a close eye on my phone. I always try and take the call, even if it's only to let them know that I um, am just about to go into a meeting, but I'll call them back so that people feel like I am actually always here. Yeah, that's some really helpful tips. And I imagine if you're a people person, I feel like that could be something that would end up being, for me, it would be a favorite part of the job, being able to have really close relationships with your clients. And for you, is that, one of the things you really value most about private practice or is there anything else that makes you value private practice more than perhaps going in-house somewhere? Mm. Again, that's a really good question. So when I was at law school, I had an idea in my head that I thought litigation was an area of law that I was really interested in. And so I was initially quite keen on getting a job in litigation practice. Um, I ended up taking a role here at Lane Neve working for one of the corporate partners. Um, and that was a bit of a leap of faith for me, but I'm so thrilled that I did decide to go into corporate because it is an area of law that um, where you're often working on projects that it's something that the client is investing in. It's important to them in terms of moving their business forward. You're able to help and support them through that process. And by winning that trust and delivering a good result for the client, um, you are then building a relationship that carries you forward in many cases over, over many years. And so you're absolutely right. These people, they, they end up becoming your, your friends as well through the process that you're working in and you know that you can trust and rely on each other. Um, you, you would be able to develop similar relationships in-house. In-house is um, it's sort of the, the mirror image of that because often in private practice as a corporate lawyer, you were working with the in-house counsel. Um, in-house is quite a different role. So in, in a lot of organisations, you might be the only lawyer in-house. And so uh, one of the things I really personally enjoy about private practice is the fact that I'm working with a lot of other lawyers, but I could understand that for many people, that would not be their preferred <laughs> mode of operating. In 2014, you did your master's at University of Melbourne in 
competition and consumer law, um, which is like, quite a pivotal move. What piqued your interest in um, that area of law in the first place? Hmm. Well, I hadn't had any exposure to competition law at all when I was going through the University of Canterbury. I hadn't done a paper in competition law, and in my first few years of practice here at Langneve, I didn't have any Commerce Act issues come across my desk. Um, but we acted for a, the New Zealand arm of a global corporate, and they went through a, a, a global merger process, and it piqued the attention of the New Zealand Commerce Commission, who was interested to understand whether there might be a possibility, possibility that in New Zealand, um, the implications of that merger might be to lessen competition in the New Zealand market. And so that was the first time I had had any exposure to working on a matter where the Commerce Commission was on the other side. And um, we leveraged some support from a competition law barrister uh, to assist us with that file. And I just enjoyed um, working on that matter so much. It opened my eyes to this area of law. And um, it was just, I found it really fascinating that in corporate law, you're helping businesses to operate day to day. But then sort of quite outside of all of this, there is this legislative framework that is intended to ensure that New Zealand's markets are operating as efficiently as possible. And we are all actors in those markets and we're all subject to this legislation that's trying to ensure that that works properly. And so I was really keen to try and do more law in that area. Um, but it is quite technical. And uh, if you have the Commerce Commission asking questions about whether your conduct is compliant with the Commerce Act or not, um, that's, that's a really serious issue for any business. So I wanted to ensure that I was very capable of assisting our clients in that area and that's what prompted me to look to see whether I might be able to do some upskilling. And I was just really, really lucky that the University of Melbourne it's obviously not very far away, and um, it runs wonderful master's programs in all sorts of areas of law. So the master's that I did wasn't a master's of law, it was a master's of competition and consumer protection law. And for um, New Zealand students who are thinking about postgrad, there's all sorts of different specialist master's programs that the University of Melbourne offers. It was absolutely brilliant. And the paper that I, the course that I did now, which I did by going over to Australia, um, you can now do completely online if you wanted to. And for our listeners who aren't that familiar with competition law, myself included, could you explain kind of in a nutshell how you actually operate in that space? So what you do as a competition lawyer practically? Sure. Okay. So primarily the work that you're doing is relating to the Commerce Act. And so the Commerce Act is intended to ensure that New Zealand's markets are operating efficiently. And the tool that the Act uses to drive efficiency in New Zealand markets is the tool of competition between businesses. So in an ideal hypothetical market, you'd have lots of competitors that are all operating completely independently of each other. 
And the idea is that that competitive process would ensure that consumers are getting offered um, the best goods at the best prices or the best services at the best prices. And there's three key tools that the Act uses to try and promote competition in markets. So the first one is merger regulation. Because if you imagine in a hypothetical market where there's lots of actors, if they all go around merging with each other very quickly, you'll end up with a highly concentrated market, which is sort of the opposite of what you're aiming for. So um, you're not allowed to undertake a merger in New Zealand if the effect or likely effect of that merger would be to substantially lessen competition. So a lot of the work that we do would be advising clients on whether their acquisition that they're considering may have Commerce Act implications. So there's that side of things. Um, the Act also recognises that there are some markets where businesses will naturally um, end up with market power, and it's not illegal to have market power. You might get it by being really innovative. Like, for example, when Uber first arrived on the scene, it would have had market power because it, it, had, it had essentially created a whole new market. So having market power is okay, but there is a prohibition in the Act um, against using that market power um, in an anti-competitive way that is going to um, unfairly disadvantage those smaller competitors in the market. Um, so we act for businesses with market power, helping to ensure that they don't do anything that would be perceived as anti-competitive. Um, and we also act for clients who uh, operate in markets where there is a dominant player um, it, that can be causing them some quite significant challenges. So that's that's another area. Um, but most of the work that we do here at Lane Neve in our practice is um, in the cartel space. And so that's the third area that's governed under the Act, which again, if you go back to your hypothetical market, you've got lots of companies out there. They're all ostensibly operating independently. If actually behind the scenes, those businesses are talking to each other and coordinating on things like price or what sorts of products they're going to offer or who they're going to sell their products to, well, then that's not actually a competitive market at all. You're really operating more like one business at that point. And so the prohibitions in the Act that prevent businesses from colluding on things like price, um, that's referred to as hard, hardcore cartel conduct. The provisions have recently been criminalised in New Zealand. You can actually go to jail now um, for engaging in that sort of conduct. And you would actually be really surprised at um, how much cartel advice we provide. So um, it's a really, really fascinating area of the law and um, every, every day is different. I'd really love to ask you some more questions about um, kind of advising on cartel related matters but just to rewind really quickly could you give me an example of what actually um, your second example of what you do is like um, advising in spaces where either party is um, being disadvantaged or the one possibly disadvantaging other businesses what what's a practical example of what misusing market power looks like yeah sure okay um well, there's lots of different ways that businesses can do that. And I obviously have to talk in hypotheticals, but one 
classic example would be if you've got a, a dominant incumbent sitting in the marketplace who's not subject to much in the way of competition at the moment, um, if they were to see that there was a potential competitor that was uh, just launching into the market, just starting out, like embryonic, um, one thing that that dominant competitor could do, um, because they have a lot of resource at their disposal, would be that they could lower the price of their goods to a very, very low level, um, below the cost of producing those goods. And they could hold that price low just long enough for the potential competitor to essentially wipe out, to collapse out of the market because they can't compete with that low, low price. And then as soon as the dominant player has eradicated the competitor from the market, they can raise their price back up. And they can do that because they know that they'll then recapture all of the work and they'll make back the losses that they had made. So um, persistent low, below cost pricing um, can be a sign of abuse of dominance. That's really fascinating. I didn't, um, didn't really know anything about it before. What, how would you advise like a business if they're the one in that position of power? If they're in that position of power? Mm. Um, well, it, it can be really challenging because if you're a business that has um, market power, you, you're, you're quite threatening to the other businesses in the market a lot of the time. And so even if you are behaving in a way that is not intended to be anti-competitive, there can be a perception amongst competitors that you are behaving in an anti-competitive manner. So um, those businesses really need to be very self-aware um, whenever they're doing anything, really, um, to check, to sense check whether there may or may not be a perception of anti-competitive conduct. And if so, what's your strategy for managing that? Um, because we've just literally just had a law change in this area. This is Section 36 of the Commerce Act, and the wording of that section was amended back in April this year. Oh, no. The lights in our office go off. <laughs> We're in an eco-friendly building. Hang on a minute. So, um, yeah, businesses with market power need to be really um, self-aware about how their conduct might be perceived out in the marketplace. And then section 36 of the Commerce Act, which is the section that prohibits misuse of market power, that the wording of that section changed in April this year. Um, and so we've been working with our, our clients that have market power to ensure that their current business practices are compliant with the new legislation. And then, of course, any new business initiatives that they roll out always need to be sent to check against Section 36 to make sure that there are no Commerce Act compliance problems. So it's um, for businesses that have market power, they're typically aware of that. And Section 36 is very much front of mind in just in their day-to-day -day business planning. And, and strategies but I always do like to say we act for the good guys our clients are not in the habit of deliberately abusing their market power um, but yes there are there are certainly some companies in New Zealand with market 
power that um, behave in really concerning ways. And um, yeah, we act for a number of clients who are on the receiving end of some of that conduct and those markets can be very, very challenging to operate in. And when you're advising on cartel-related matters, um, what kind of strategies mm -hmm. and uh, legal mechanisms, mechanisms as well do you employ um, to assist businesses, um, especially concerning kind of people who have more of a monopoly? I think there can be a perception that when businesses engage in cartel conduct, anti-competitive collusion with their competitors, that that's a very deliberate behaviour that is designed to advantage the business and to disadvantage the consumers. And certainly there is cartel conduct that falls into that category. But in my experience, there is a significant proportion of um, cartel conduct or, or cartel risk that arises in the context of something that was very innocently entered into and it was never actually in the minds of the businesses involved that there could be any potential problem under the Commerce Act. It isn't, it isn't an issue that people are alive to. So part of my role as an advisor is raising awareness of the cartel laws within organisations. I think it can be easy for businesses to think, oh, well, I wouldn't engage in price fixing, so I don't really need to know about the cartel laws. But actually, any time a business is coming together with competitors um, in any forum, there is a risk um, that perhaps what is going on might end up on the wrong side of the line when it comes to anti-competitive conduct. And so helping uh, people within organisations to recognise high-risk forums, high-risk situations, collaborations that make those issues, that's all part of it. Um, there's also, there are a number of situations that cross our desk that by the time um, the organisation has become aware of it at a senior management level, the conduct has been going on for quite some time, often with no appreciation that there was a cartel issue at the heart of it. Um, but where businesses become aware of the fact that they are party to a cartel arrangement, there's some decisions that need to be made there because the Commerce Commission, um, it, it can be really difficult for the Commerce Commission as the regulator in this area to identify um, cartel behaviour in markets. Um, and so there are a number of strategies that the Commission employs to try to reveal this sort of behaviour. And one of the most effective tools that they have is something called the, the Leniency and Immunity Programme. And so under that programme, if you are the first business to report um, a cartel to the Commerce Commission, and you are involved in that cartel, then provided that you cooperate with the Commerce Commission and comply with their requirements, um, you can obtain full immunity from prosecution in return for that cooperation. Um, and so uh, one, of the, one of the types of work we do in this area is assisting clients to utilise that leniency process where that's appropriate. It's a really interesting mechanism and 
quite innovative for law, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, I think it was devised by um, some staff at the Federal Trade Commission many years ago. That's the Commerce Commission over in America. And um, it draws on the economic idea that cartels are inherently unstable because there is an incentive in the members of the cartels to cheat on each other. Because if you all agree one price, but then one person secretly offers customers a lower price, then they'll win all the work, right? So it's already inherently unstable and it's just another form of instability. Like if you come and tell us, tell the regulator about it, then you'll get off scot-free and everybody else will get penalized. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, you seem like a very good subject matter expert and you've obviously worked really hard at that over the past 16 years. What advice would you have for junior practitioners as to the skills that they should focus on developing in order to not only succeed in a law firm, but excel in a law firm environment? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I mean, I really enjoy the practice of law, the the day-to-day work in the the legal field. but I also really enjoy the people side of things. And I think when you're a a junior practitioner in a law firm, um, mastering the the relationship stuff, that is what is going to help lay a really good foundation for the rest of your career, wherever it takes you. People that you're working with, will they'll have all sorts of different working styles. And if you can work out the, the best way to work with that particular person and to get the best out of that relationship, which in some cases might mean that you're working in a way that doesn't come particularly naturally for you. But if, if you can crack that nut, then a lot of other things just click into place. And so... I think when you're a junior lawyer, trying to get exposure to working with lots of different people on lots of different matters and trying to calibrate those relationships so that they're as effective as possible, um, that's a really good investment of time, I would say. Awesome. And you've been able to experience both being a junior lawyer and now as a partner. I imagine it would be quite different once you become partner how does your role change once you become partner? Hmm. Yeah, so the the business of law is something quite different to what you are trained on in law school. And it actually requires a lot of different skills. And there's skills that you're not necessarily trained in when you're working day-to-day as a legal practitioner providing service to clients. So um, as a partner of a law firm, uh, you're responsible for the success of the firm. Um, So you're responsible for the firm's financial performance. Um, You are responsible for uh, the culture of the firm and every single staff member that is employed looking after those people and not in a paternalistic way but you know your colleagues are your responsibility and their experience at 
your firm is your responsibility. Um, you employ your senior management team, your CEO, who's responsible for employing the, the people who work with that person. Um, and everything that comes with it, you know, the marketing of the firm, the way that you present yourself in the market, your premises, where you're located, all of the strategic decisions about the um, directions that you're going to take the firm in, um, the practice areas that you're going to invest in, what you are going to do, what you're not going to do, all of that fundamentally sits with the partners. And um, I really enjoy that aspect of practice. And not everybody does. And that's really understandable because it's very far removed from advising clients on anti-competitive cartel conduct. You know, it's not, they're not particularly connected. Um, but it is, I suppose, one of the reasons why a lot of corporate lawyers, particularly at that senior level, um, do often sit in governance roles and charities out in the community or on advisory boards or boards of directors for businesses um, because in running a law firm you do get a lot of experience in governance which can be really helpful out in, in the wider commercial sector as well. And so for lawyers that might not have an interest in the business of law, are there many that you see that don't go on to this step and where do they sit if they don't take the next step and go to partner and be all working in the space of the business of law? Mm. Well, one of the wonderful things about a law degree is that it sets people up so well for all sorts of interesting careers. It's a degree that this has a high degree of usefulness out of the, the marketplace. So the first thing is you don't even have to practice as a lawyer at all. You could be doing something completely different where your law degree is still a huge advantage to you. Um, but there are lots of lawyers who, for all sorts of reasons, um, don't want to be a partner, but are still very happy in a private practice environment. And um, we would usually have people like that in a special counsel or a consultant role. Um, so private practice is absolutely an option for people like that. Um, In-house was something you mentioned earlier, Sophie, as another potential career path. And um, some lawyers do go in-house. Again, it's a very different operating environment from operating in a private practice law firm. Um, but I, yeah, I've had a number of colleagues over the years who, who take that path and really enjoy it and find it really, really rewarding. And actually one of the senior partners in the corporate team here at Langneve actually spent more than a decade in-house over in Australia um, before joining the firm. So, and um, he's a very commercial lawyer as a result of that experience. Um, you Also, there are a lot of lawyers who go out as barristers and so those people will be practicing they might be operating out of a barristerial chambers um, but they're they're essentially their own boss they're working for themselves and uh, in my practice area because the work that you're doing is very technical a lot of the time I work with barristers regularly and, and really enjoy it um, but some barristers will 
readily acknowledge that one of the reasons that was a attractive career path for them is because the business of law is doesn't really appeal for someone who does have big aspirations to become a partner in a firm and that's the route they do want to take at what stage do you think they need to start thinking about the steps that you need to take to become a partner i'd say as early as possible but that's probably just me because i'm a planner <laughs> um I listened to a podcast a few years ago where a really successful CEO was talking about his career, reflecting back on it. And he said that as he'd gotten older, he'd started setting five-year goal horizons because he had realized that there weren't actually that many five-year chunks of time left <laughs> in order for him to achieve things. And he felt that five years was actually about right in terms of getting a really big project off the ground and, and completed. And um, that, that really resonated with me. I think that's probably about right. So you, you do want to have one eye to the future. And um, the way it was explained to me once is if you imagine a, a tall building, right? and the ground floor of the building is the factory floor. If you imagine that the practice of law is operating at that factory floor level, well, up on the top floor of the building, there's a boardroom, right? And that's where the strategic decisions are made about how the business is going to be run and what it's focusing on and what the goals are for the coming year. Well, as an individual lawyer, um, it's really important that you spend lots of time working on the factory floor and honing your skills, but you also remember that you need to remember to get in the lift and from time to time and go up to the boardroom <laughs> and spend some time thinking about your own personal strategy and your direction of travel and what's what the goals are for you and working out where you're going to need to invest your time in order to make sure that those things stay on track because nobody else is actually going to do that for you. Um, you might go through annual year, annual review processes in your law firm or six, year, six monthly reviews where you do set some goals and things like that. But, but really most of this long-term stuff is, is predominantly self-driven. And um, I think there is a real risk, given how busy we are as lawyers, that you could just be working really really hard on the on the practice of law and then wake up one day and look around and realize that you're not where you had hoped to be in your career by this point or this you're actually in a place that you never really intended to get to so um yeah i would encourage people to think about this um regularly and early um that's yeah. a really great answer thanks um, it's definitely advice I'm personally going to hold on to. Um, so before we finish the episode, uh, I am going to ask you some quick fire questions. So um, I'll just ask you a question and then you just say the first thing that comes to mind, like a sentence um, or so. First, in an alternate universe where you're not a lawyer, what would your dream job be? Um, when I was at high school, I loved acting and I wanted to be an actor. My mother was horrified. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Love it. What's the biggest green flag you look for when you're interviewing someone? Normality. You know, that's literally the first thing we're looking for is somebody who we think is going to fit in really well with the rest of our team. And our team's just filled with really lovely, nice, normal people who enjoy each other's company. So that's what we're looking for. (laughs) What was the best piece of advice you were given during your career? When I was in fifth form, which is showing my age, what's that year? Um, year 11 at high school, uh, we did a social studies project where we were asked to interview someone who had lived through World War II. And I wanted to interview my grandmother, but she um, wouldn't agree to it because she said it wouldn't be interesting enough, which was actually really sad because I know it would have been really interesting. But she directed me to her next door neighbour, Ron, who had flown with the New Zealand Air Force during World War II. And he had just had... um, yeah, she was right. He had had some um, an incredible time during the war. He had lost three brothers in the war. Actually, it was. Um, yeah. But at the end of the interview, I asked him whether he had any advice for somebody my age, and he said um, that his advice would be to marry the right person, which I think in the modern world would be that. If you are going to spend your life with somebody, make sure that that's the right person and and find the right job, which, again, in our modern world is probably most people have more than one career, but getting alignment on what you're doing is really important. Um, one of the senior practitioners here at Lane Neve, every time I see him, he always asks me the same question, still loving the law? <laughs> and I think, yeah, um, it's not true of everybody, but for me, in order to be able to do this job, I do really need to love it. Like that passion is is a big part of what carries you through your day. That's really valuable advice. Thank you. Finally, what emerging trends in the legal industry do you think will have a significant impact um, over the next few years? Oh, um, gosh, we live in such a fast-changing world at the moment. Um, Key focuses for me over the next 12 to 24 months um, include upskilling myself in using AI. Um, I think senior practitioners will very quickly get left behind um, if we we don't uh, get on top of that. And I plan to lean really heavily on our more junior lawyers because I know that they already have worked out a heck of a lot more about this than I have um, and sort of semi-connected with this, looking at what parts of the business we can automate a little bit more so that we can free ourselves up to be providing that high value, high high quality advice. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, that is going to be a big one. And we just actually um, had another episode we recorded with someone else who was talking all about that. And that's going to be a huge thing, I think, in the next few years. So thanks so much for joining us on this episode. It's been really great to have you. Um, Where can people follow up with you or get in touch? Yeah, well, that's another really good skill that junior practitioners should be using is networking on LinkedIn. So that's a really good place to start. If anybody has watched this podcast and they're keen on getting in touch, they're very welcome to find me on LinkedIn. It shouldn't be too tricky, hopefully, and Ryan, Lane Neve. (laughs) 
and um, they're very welcome to flick me a message um, and send me a, a little request to connect. So, Awesome. Thanks so much, Anna. It's been great to have you on. Yeah, really nice to meet you too. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of File Notes. To keep up with the latest episodes and content, follow us on LinkedIn and YouTube at File Notes Podcast. You can also visit us on our website at vxt.co.nz forward slash podcast forward slash file notes to subscribe to our email list and never miss an episode. That's vxt.co.nz forward slash podcasts forward slash file notes. See you there.